Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Vascular Crosstalk. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAPO. My name is Lisandra Vila Ellis, and I am a member of NAPO's Education Committee, and I will be your host for today. We will be talking to Dr. Christy Redhorse, who is an associate professor at Stanford University's Department of Biology and Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. She's also an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Dr. Redhorse fell in love with experiments and scientific research during her master's degree at San Francisco State University. She spent some postdoctoral time at Genentech in the lab of Dr. Napoleone Ferrara, but the work of her lab was started during her postdoc at Stanford University with Dr. Mark Krasnow. There, Dr. Redhorse identified the progenitors of coronary arteries in mouse hearts. In her own lab at Stanford, she and her team went on to explore many different aspects of how coronary arteries develop from these progenitors. The Red Horse Group also studies how coronaries regenerate and respond to injury and devises methods for increasing their growth to enhance cardiac recovery. Today, like I mentioned earlier, we have Dr. Redhurst with us, um, and we are going to start this by doing a small word association game uh, to get to know you better. Uh, so, Christy, I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite model organism? Mouse. Mouse. And your favorite cell type? Well, endothelial cells. <laughs> That's an easy one, huh? Yeah. Um, what's uh, the most dreaded lab technique for you? Anything hardcore biochemistry. <laughs> the IP Western blot. <laughs> and for your students, what do you think? Um, for my students, let's see. What do they not want to do? Um, I don't know, probably the same, th same, <laughs> same technique because I can't give them any advice on that. Yeah. Or making solutions. That's a dreaded one in my lab. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the thing you love to do the most in the lab? I love to cruise around and talk to people about yeah. what they're doing and maybe get a sneak peek of some piece of data. Nice. Do you uh, bug your students to just like show you things, even if they think they're not ready to show you yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they know I'm pretty chill, so they don't mind showing me. Um, but, you know, I try to do it in a, a casual way. So just walking around. Oh, hey, how's it going? Anything going on today? <laughs> <laughs> just so that they're not um, surprised or something. Right, right. Are you a that deer in the headlights look? I just uh, see you later. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll come back to this later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's funny because it's really changed a lot uh, over the years. Because now everybody has these earbuds that I can't see in their ears, and yeah. they're listening to music or podcasts or whatever. And so now it's really awkward because I walk around. Hey, how's it going? And then they've got to be like, just just a minute. <laughs> and then, Uh, it's, it's funny how it's all, uh, it used to be these big headphones and you'd know not to bother somebody, but now they're concealed. Yeah. Now you can't tell 
and you're just talking to them for five minutes and realize that they haven't heard anything you've said. Exactly. They weren't quite ready to engage in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you a procrastinator? Um, no. No. Any advice for the procrastinators? <laughs> um, uh, have your brain scare you to death. <laughs> that's, that's not, I mean... I think the reason I'm not a procrastinator is I'm scared to death of not finishing something at the last oh. minute. <laughs> um, what are your hobbies? Do you have anything you like to do outside of the lab? Well, right now I'm uh, really into genealogy. Oh. So that's one of my hobbies. It's really fun because it, it kind of relates to the lab because at some point it got to be that I don't really have the time capacity to do a lot of experiments, but mm -hmm. I love doing actual experiments. Uh, and I'm not really that great at uh, computational stuff. So I can do, you know, the 10x uh, Lupe browser looking at yeah. single cell data, um, but I can't, you know, do, I can't go around the internet and download a bunch of Uh, data sets and do the analyses that I think about. I have to rely on people to do that. Um, but the cool thing about genealogy is it feels like an experiment to me recently uh -huh. because, you know, it incorporates your DNA and then it incorporates all these people's histories. And then you can search all the um, newspaper articles for the past 100 years and oh, wow. military records. And so it's just a big... Uh, investigation just like doing an experiment and I can actually do it on my computer so. <laughs> have you it's found anything interesting I have yeah so there were a lot of questions in my past from uh, both sides of my family and I was able to answer some big outstanding questions so it was super exciting yeah that's really cool all right Um, so now that hopefully you're more comfortable with me asking you questions, <laughs> um, we're going to ask you to give us a little elevator speech. So the point of this is if anybody, if somebody that's listening is not familiar with your work, how can you encapsulate, um, encapsulate your research in one to two minutes, one to two minutes. So heart disease, uh, and specifically the heart disease that blocks blood flow uh, to cardiac muscle is one of, it is the biggest killer of uh, humans worldwide. And so we're really interested in regenerating these blood vessels that bring the blood flow to the heart. And uh, when they get blocked, we would like to know how to regenerate those. And so what we do is study how during development, the embryo builds these blood vessels uh, de novo. And then we try to take lessons from that and go into an injured model to see if we can use those lessons to regenerate these vessels. Awesome. I have seen your work and read your papers, so it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but how did you get into this field to begin with? Well, I first got excited because when I was doing my master's, I saw Susan Fisher give a talk and she gave this amazing talk. And so, you know how you get really, really inspired just by seeing a talk yeah. by a really great communicator on a really cool subject and the placenta is what she studied. And the placenta is so 
interesting and fascinating. And so it just drew me in. And I asked if I could do my master's project in her lab at UCSF. And so one of the interesting things that, that caught me about the placenta is that it's a hemiallograph. So I was interested in the immunology about how the, um, how the mother does not reject the half foreign placenta. And so I was interested in that and doing experiments uh, with my mentor, a graduate student. Uh, and then I ended up joining the lab uh, to do my PhD work in, in that lab. And I was tinkering around with different experiments and I just happened to get good data on some experiments investigating how the placenta incorporates into the blood vessels of the mother's uterus. And so what the placenta does is it targets the arteries and goes very deep into the arteries to reroute them, but it doesn't migrate up very far. It connects to the veins, but it doesn't migrate up and remodel too much the, the uterine veins. And so this, this fascinated me and this is how I got into vascular biology because then just snowballed from wanting to know everything about the blood vessels. That's awesome. Um, and how did you move on to heart? So that's how I got into vascular biology. And so I really loved vascular biology. And so I wanted to stay in that subject. And I went and did a short postdoc uh, with Napoleon Ferrara at Gen Genentech. And he's, you know, very famous vascular biologist, discover VEGF. Um, yeah. And so then I wanted to go back to academia to do a postdoc still in the subject. And so I went to Mark Krasnow's lab. And at the time, there was really very little known about organ-specific vascular beds. Uh, and so I wanted to look into this. And this was at the time when microarrays first came out. And so I proposed looking at organ-specific functions uh, of blood vessels to him. And he suggested to me, well, while you're at it, why don't you just pick one organ and look in great detail and pick an organ that has clinical significance? Mm. And so therefore we were thinking, well, the heart sounds like a great idea to focus on then. And so that's exactly what happened. Awesome. And when I was, when I started doing experiments and looking into the details, uh, what I stumbled across was this, this uh, problem that we didn't even know where the, these blood vessels came from or how they, um, how they developed on the heart. Yeah. It was one of the first things I looked into. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, we call Mark Krasnow the grandpa of our lab because uh, yeah, <laughs> because my mentors all, was also close up with him. So yeah, you are there the same time. Yeah, so he's our lab grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is amazing, and it's so um, unique sometimes how a single organ can get your attention and just can completely just get everything from you. It sounds to me like you feel that way about the heart. Yes, I do. I do. It was because there's always new techniques coming online. When I was, um, when I was starting that project, it was, there was a lot of uh, activity around Cree 
lineage tracing. Uh, that was somewhat new at that time. And so you just, you get these new techniques that come out in different periods of history yeah. and you use those new techniques to apply it to a new organ or a new cell type, and then you learn new things. So this is what is happening, exactly what you did. You came in and you used single cell sequencing to learn something really new about the lung. Um, and so I wonder what's gonna happen next. <laughs> yeah, I was about to ask you, where do you see this going? Right, well, what I see going in the way that my lab is uh, heading at least part of it is now that we have uh, tools, uh, more tools available, such as CRISPR uh, uh, targeting of the genome of different non-model or non-typical model organisms, is looking at the natural world and the diversity and trying to see if we can use that diversity to learn something about, in our case, blood vessels. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the main um, problems now with all this data we're generating is so vast. It's what, have, what do we do with it now? We can do, we can find this data, but now what? <laughs> what follows that analysis? Right. So a lot of really exciting work is happening around people uh, developing new computational methods of finding new interesting things from all this big giant data sets. Yeah, exactly. Definitely exciting and completely out of my capabilities. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think there's um, it's a really good area of collaboration because there are things that we can do as biologists, but um, just looking at the data without the biology also doesn't make sense. Right. Um, so it's really, it's a really good um, synergy. It is really, really good. And this is what happened with our first single cell um, uh, study, which we published in 2018. So it's been a long time now, um, but that's exactly what happened. There was a student who was a computer scientist and biologist and then we were the biologists and we literally got together, looked at a bunch of single cell plots at the time. This was before 10X and uh, the plug and play computer program. So he was doing it all by hand. Yeah. And we just had so much fun thinking of hypotheses, making a prediction about what the gene expression patterns would be if those hypotheses were true. And then looking at the gene expression plots. Yeah. And seeing, yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun and a really great synergy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, now we're gonna shift gears a little bit, and we want to get to know a little bit more about your background. Um, so one of the main things that we want to communicate to students that are listening or people that are starting their new labs right now is that you can get to be great scientists uh, from different backgrounds, making mistakes, um, coming back to something that you had done in the past or forgotten about, you know, whatever. There, everything works out the way it happens for a reason, sort of. So we want to ask next, um, is there one thing that you wish you had done differently? Um, or one thing that you're glad that you have done? 
So I have made so many mistakes, but then those or mistakes or things have happened that didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. But in the end, like you said, it worked out better potentially in the end because I learned a lesson and, or a different, or it just wasn't my time for that particular thing to happen um, or a different opportunity that was even better came along at a later date. Um, So yes, these are all things that have littered my experience. So there's one at every different state career stage that I can think of, but I don't really regret that much. The only thing that I do regret, and this is something maybe is not 100% my fault. It's just the fault of our culture is that if I think about the things that the way that I interacted with people probably 20 years ago, I wish that I didn't interact with them that way in terms of, I'm sure I was littered with microaggressions, for example, that I've learned now are not the way that I want to behave. So I guess the biggest regret of mine is behaving in a way that isn't, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but <laughs> behaving in a, it's not like I, uh, you know, did some kind of crime or anything, but um, you know, just behaving in a way that now I know is not 100% necessarily inclusive and not really reflective of how I feel about the world. Yeah, no, that, I think that's so important. Uh, this is a very important subject and kind of a sensitive one to talk about because we live in this new world that pretty much cancels you with any mistakes (laughs) um and I think people are allowed to make mistakes and Mm -hmm. it's just part of human nature to make mistakes and the important thing is to learn from them and apologize to whomever was involved and move on and grow because that's what we're all trying to do grow as scientists as people um as parents whatever but um, it's really good and it's, it's important that we learn and, you know, accept, like, I made a mistake and I, you know, now I know better. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. It makes it a little bit better to understand that the way that we behave is kind of encoded in our brain and in our, our culture. And so it's not 100%. I mean, we need to work to get better. If you're refusing to do that, then that's a problem. But maybe at a later date, you will see, have an epiphany and (laughs) and that process. But I think it it makes it a little bit better if we don't, you know, accuse. I mean, if it's at a certain level, you know, there needs to be accusations. But if if we understand that it's the culture of the time that we grew up. Yeah, context. Yeah, that that uh, imprints our brain and our neurons. And you can even tell because I, I'm like everyone, I, I, I'm like many people in our culture right now and that I'm trying to learn about these things and get better. And I even many times have been um, the target of these types of things, even though I also say, say things that I wish I, I hadn't had. Um, but you know, even though I'm trying to get better, I can think of an instance where I, f- I felt like I was backed into a corner and attacked the other day and something just came out of my mouth that, that 
yeah, really was uh, not one of the things that I want to say. And so it's just this, yeah, this thing against our culture that we can hopefully gradually change. Yeah. Self-regulation is really hard um, because like you said, we're, we come with a context, right? We come with a baggage of cultural and our families and society and everything. So there are things that can really trigger one person or really getting your nerves. And when you're, when you're feeling that way, taking a step back, breathing and being like, no, right. I'm gonna, <laughs> let me think about this. It is hard. It's something that you have to practice. Right. Yeah. And yeah, people maybe of my generation even feel a little bit less comfortable talking about these things, but you know, I try. Yeah. How does you know, that, how do you think that um, this reflects on how you um, run your lab or your relationship with your trainees? I feel like I have a better relationship. It, it's always now that I have 10 years under my belt, I have perspective. And so now I can realize that there's, go, there's a whole trajectory of a student. And this trajectory is in going to include, or a postdoc, going to include some rough times because this isn't the easiest job. And so that helps, I think. Good. Um, how, what type of mentor do you consider yourself to be? I consider myself to be, to try to be empathetic, empathetic. Um, I also think I am very, in some senses, patient. I understand that sometimes it can take some time to acquire skills Uh, in certain areas, but that I realize that everybody has some skills. There's like, if you might think about being a great scientist, you need four out of five, let's just say that. And uh, students come with maybe one or two already they're really good at, and then they need to, you know, improve on the other three, but then every student's going to be good at different ones. And so I think I'm good at seeing that and being patient as people try to grow and get better. Do you think that, that you're that way because of the way you yourself were mentored? I think it's more because I realize what I have achieved at this point and what I must have been like in the past. <laughs> and so I just... I have such a positive hope for almost every student or postdoc and almost every person. I can see something good, I feel like, in everyone. Because you never know. You can't tell at the beginning of someone's education whether they're going to really jive with this career. You just have to work at it and be patient. Yeah. Who are the people who have helped you in your career in terms of mentoring? Let's see. I know Susan Fisher was life-changing. <laughs> right, right, right. So she gave me a great experience and a great opportunity. But the very first person that really changed everything is 
Frank Bayless. So he is at San Francisco State and he runs a program for the masters, uh, for science masters. And I did not get into graduate school. I wouldn't say I had a lot of great mentorship uh, in my undergraduate. And I, although I did have some lab experience, there was one nice um, mentorship relationship. But still, I think I wasn't quite ready. And so I didn't get into a PhD program and I didn't apply to that many anyway. Um, but the ones that I did get an interview at, I did not get accepted. Uh, and so I really still wanted to go to graduate school. And so there was this master's program at San Francisco State and I just applied and Frank Bayless really zeroed in on my application and offered me a position. And that really changed everything because then I actually got in to a lab where I was doing molecular biology. And I just realized I loved these types of experiments and I loved lab work. And then that's how, when I was in that program, then I saw Susan Fisher give a talk. And then that was a really great experience to do my master's and PhD in her lab. Did you always know that uh, you were gonna be in academia? I did, well, I was hope hopeful. I, mean, I don't think I was, if you look, and this gets back to your, your question about why I feel like I'm a little bit patient is that I look at the, my entering class in P, first year PhD, and I don't think you would zero in on me and say that one's going to going later on be, have her have a lab at Stanford. Um, I don't think that that would have been the case, um, but I felt in my heart that I wanted to be because, or I always thought it was something that I that would be a place for me because I loved every uh, different aspect of it. So I love doing experiments. I love writing. I was able to write a couple papers as a master's student and I loved writing and I loved putting, putting the data together into a story and all of the different components that you hear some people and my other cohort classmates, they would just over the years realize they really hated and they did not like. I liked and got great joy from all of these different aspects of academia. And so I always thought that if anybody's going to do it, it should be me because I like all these components that everyone else is complaining about. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand that. <laughs> do you like writing grants? I do because it's a real, it's a real learning process for me. And I have, I have a real scatterbrained mind. So my mind will jump to all different kinds of subjects. Uh, and so whenever I'm writing a grant or whenever I'm sitting down and reading a paper, then that's a, a reason for me to just sit down and not only think about what, you know, I'm reading, but have an organized reason to sit and think about the projects that are going on. Yeah. And so my brain to do something that helps me. So yes, I do like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a really, it can be a really fun exercise, fun with air quotes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it can be a really interesting exercise. Um, is there a trick of the trade um, of, you know, 
for grantsmanship between all the grants they've reviewed and the ones that you have uh, got funded or written yourself, is there one, you know, very effective, you think, trick that you can share? Well, there's a different types of grant getting and different types of grant writers and different types of approaches. And so my approach ever since I was very young has always been doing something that seems to be out of the mainstream. And so something that I feel like is new, when you read it, feels new and creative and something different than everyone else. And so that's the type of grant that I write. And then when I, uh, when I consult with my postdocs who are writing their grants and students, I always make that point that think about the other person reading it and are they thinking, wow, this is really cool, different research that's out, that's something new, it's something really forward thinking. Um, and so that's a type of approach to grant writing. And that's gotten me a lot of, um, that approach has gotten me a lot of like career grants. So mm -hmm. I, have, I don't have like a large list of R01s. It's more like I got this uh, NICEF uh, Robertson investigator career grant. And then that's the same kind of thing for the Howard Hughes. Um, and so that, that's my strategy. I know there's a lot of people that are really good strategizing, writing things that are definitely going to work. They're definitely got the right amount of preliminary data, the right amount of um, description of your background and how you've achieved a bunch of things already and describing that. Uh, that's another approach. I, I think getting NIH funding. Yeah. Um, so I think we're towards the end of our recording. And is there any advice uh, that you think you would give your, your, to yourself in the past, if you could do that? Is there any advice that you have? Any advice to the past? I think I would like to tell myself that when you start a lab, you need to recognize that you are the boss. And even if you feel completely comfortable and want to be friendly with the people that work for you, um, they're not always as comfortable as you are. And to just be mindful of that. You feel very comfortable. The, the PI feel, the young PI starting a lab, mm -hmm. in my case, I feel very comfortable, but of course I feel comfortable. I'm in the power position. Um, but all the other people I need, I wish that I would have been more mindful of the fact that, um, I had a power position and felt comfortable maybe, uh, being super friendly, maybe it, it's better, you know, to be more respectful of the fact that, you know, undergraduates might feel a little bit less comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I think even it happens in the lab when you're in a postdoc or after your postdoc and you have um, graduate students sort of under you, although not really because you're not a PI, but um, you might feel like, oh, it's just another lab member. But 
they see you and they kind of run away just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I saw this article in the New York times, I don't know, I want to say eight years ago, and they were pointing out, they were surveying undergraduates and the fact of whether they call their PI by the first name or the professors by their first name or professor last name. And the, the whole point of the article was that, yeah, you may think you're being, you're being really a great and fun professor by telling people to call you by their first name, but really they need that to feel comfortable. Sometimes they need that boundary. Yeah. So that yeah. article really affected me and got me thinking, oh, well, maybe I need to think about that kind of thing. Yeah. So do you go by Christy or Dr. Redhorse with your students? I always tell everybody to call me Christy, <laughs> but I'm really <laughs> informal. Yeah. <laughs> well, Christy, uh, <laughs> it was great talking to you. And I think um, we've learned a lot about you and your career. And I think the career advice uh, that you've given us and just sharing your experience with us um, is really great. And I'm really appreciative of your time. I'm really glad we found some time to do this. Great. Yeah. Thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, I look forward to, it was nice talking to you and I look forward to listening to some of the other interviews. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Vascular Crosstalk. We would like to hear from you. Please let us know what you thought about this episode, future topics that you would like to hear about and other people that you would like us to interview. You can reach out via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was produced by Netbo's Education Committee, and I want to thank Niha Auha and Strider Meadows for their work in making this podcast possible. This was Lissandra Villa Ellis for Vascular Crosstuck. Until we meet again. <laughs>